To me, I thought a film like this that does deal with serious class-related issues could have had a bit more edge to it. And even towards the end of the film, must every character be redeemed? You know what I mean? Like even in stories with essentially happy endings, you might still have one or two disgruntled characters or something a little more profound or deeper. And I thought this film just sort of skimmed an agreeable surface. Now, again, by saying that it's pleasant, a lot of that has to do with what Marie alluded to before, the fact that not only is it about high fashion, but at a high point in fashion history. It's set in the late 1950s. The recovery from World War II is well on its way. And one sign of that is that the fashion industry in Paris is thriving again. And there's really are beautiful dresses. And it's really quite nice to spend time, not just in the showroom where the models are coming out on the runway, if you will, but this film to its credit does spend a lot of time in the rooms where the workers are, you know, stitching and they're doing all the, the manual labor, which of course is all almost all done by women here, but the, you know, that labor's going into it. And you can really appreciate the process of making a couture gown. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today we're gonna to talk about Miss Harris Goes to Paris and Where the Crawdads Sing. Mike, I saw both of these films on the same day in the same movie house. Very different audiences and, and obviously very different movies. But let's start off with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is, you know, an adaptation of a book, which I took the time to download and read, and it was delightful. And it's of this sort of genre of storytelling like Ted Lasso that's just kind of upbeat and hopeful in terms of the enduring messages of friendship and overcoming class and all those kinds of big, big ideas. But I very much felt like this was a older woman's movie because it was me and a whole lot of women a little older than me in the theater. So Mike, what was it like in the theater when you went? Well, to state the obvious, I'm not an older woman, but demographically, uh, you're right. It's sort of pegged that way. And the audience uh, more or less, I think, mirrored what you just described. So I'm watching it as a bit more of an outsider, at least in terms of gender, if you will. You know what? I don't want this to sound like a backhanded compliment, but I found the movie was pleasant. <laughs> and I tried to get myself to say much more than that. And I thought, well, it's an enjoyable film. And we can go into some of the reasons why I think it doesn't push as far or probe as deeply as it might. But on the surface, it's easy to watch. It's enjoyable. I would want to talk. Can we talk already about the central character, about Mrs. Harris? You have the advantage of having read the book, so you can do the, you know, the uh, from page to screen kind of comparisons. But just talking about her as a cinematic character, what I find interesting actually is in the casting. Leslie Manville plays Mrs. Harris. And she is a, you know, it's a very British uh, expression to say a charwoman. <laughs> in America, we'd never use that expression, you know, but she does domestic work. She's a cleaning lady, if you will. Very humble origins and personality and just that kind of salt of the earth goodness to her. She speaks her mind. She's nice. You know, you, you root for her inherently. And again, with the English being more class bound ostensibly than we are, we see that she's placed fairly low down on the, the totem pole societally. And we see how really she's a much better person than some of the women that she's worked for, you know, that she has an ethical integrity that they perhaps don't always have. They're more superficial that way. But anyway, what I wanted to really talk about was the casting. I found it intriguing that Leslie Manville plays Mrs. Harris and does a really good job of it. It's a really fine performance. But for her as an actress, 
the fact that she's been in, for whatever reason, at least two significant fashion-oriented films. There's this one that we're talking about, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I'll start uh, talking in rhyme couplets or something soon, you know, the sort of musicality of the title. But the fact that she had also, Leslie Manville, been in Phantom Thread. And in fact, she received an Oscar nomination for that. And that's probably the role that she's best known for. That's also a fashion movie, but her character is extremely different than that. In Phantom Thread, she plays the manager of a very ritzy, very exclusive British fashion house, and she has an imperious personality. And it's a really, really strong performance. She earned that Oscar nomination. In this movie, ironically, even though she becomes obsessed with fashion, she's a cleaning lady who wants to purchase a Dior gown. She wants to go to Paris and buy this gown, and she wants to know what couture in the sense of, you know, does something in her life. And we can talk about her values and her aspirations, but that's what she wants. But anyway, when you think about the contrast in the characters between her role in Phantom Thread and her role here, I think it's a real testament to the actor that she's able to work in that fashion milieu, but I had to remind myself that she was in the earlier film. You know what I mean? It's such a different character. And I thought, again, you know, great credit to her that she can get into that, that fashion house, if you will, and play both the, uh, you know, sort of an upstairs, downstairs thing. She can play both an upstairs role and a downstairs role. Marie, how'd you respond to that? You know, Mike, you're hitting a lot of the notes I made myself, including mentioning Phantom Thread, because this movie also struck me as the kind of movie you would really enjoy if you watched Project Runway. If you like all of that sort of behind the scenes, what does it really take to put a garment together? What does it look like at the upper echelon where you're really at the top of your craft? And one of the things they're able to do in the movie, of course, is go back and research the year that this is supposed to be taking place and have actual reproductions of Christian Dewar's gowns from that year. So for a fashion person, this is just such a wonderful, wonderful movie. And the idea of aspiring to own a Christian Dior gown, but she does not have a Christian Dior life. It's not like she's got a red carpet event or, you know, even a high school reunion. I mean, it's just the desire to own something really beautiful and being prevented in some ways by people who simply don't want to sell something that glorious to the likes of you. And it is that setup that makes you champion her cause and want her to prevail. And all of those things work really, really well. But what I will say, though, is when I was looking into the background of this whole story, I found out that there was a TV movie from 1992 where Angela Lansbury plays Mrs. Harris. In fact, they, they dropped the H altogether. And I found it on YouTube. So you can find it on YouTube, too, and watch the whole thing. It's like 90 minutes. And it is what this movie wanted to be. And there's so many great people in it. Diana Rigg plays the character that Isabel Hubert plays in the movie. And the man who uh, has lost his wife, but is there to, you know, look at the beautiful fashions, beautiful women. It's played by Omar Sharif. And then the young man who's interested in Natasha, the model, is Lothair Bluteau. So it's like one wonderful discovery after another. And honestly, it's, it's kind of shocking how the TV movie does better at telling the story than the movie did, because you can only imagine that the movie had more money and a running start and this TV movie to fashion itself on, no pun intended. Micah, are you familiar with the Angela Lansbury book? Um, I only know it secondhand. I haven't seen it, but from what I've read about it, I was also impressed by the casting in it. 
And so I, I fully support what you're saying about it, just based on, on the casting. And it actually was a bit of a disappointment for me with this film. When I find myself thinking, well, it's pleasant, but not much more. The secondary casting is okay here, but not great. And I'll start off in a way that's on a, a quasi-autobiographical note. The fashion house in Paris, the shop itself is overseen by a really, really uptight, really uh, rule-bound, very, very rigid personality, Madame Colbert, played by Isabelle Huppert. The quasi-autobiographical note is, years ago, I had interviewed Isabelle Huppert when she was making a movie in Baltimore called The Bedroom Window. She and I, you know, talked for about an hour or so, and I always admired her as an actor. She's one of the great French actresses of, of her generation. I have to say in all candor, though, when I saw her in Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and I knew from having interviewed her, I knew that you know, her, her English is, is totally fluent. I mean, you know, she, so language is not a barrier for her. I mean, going back to the 80s, she had perfect English. So language is not an issue for Isabel Huppert. But what I found disappointing it somewhat was the characterization is kind of standard issue and, and somewhat stereotypical. But what I found disappointing was the fact that although it's a, a capable performance, from my perspective, this actress I love so much, Isabelle Huppert, who still gives great performances you know, in memory almost every year now, her performance in this film, she's vamping. I, I use that word vamping. She's got the big gesture. She kind of flits into the room. I, I'm tossing my shoulders the way she sort of tosses her sometimes. She, she has that sort of, you know, regal personality. And Isabelle Huppert knows how to do that. But from my response, I just thought, you know, she's verging on caricature. And, and the character doesn't go as deep as it should. And that's in the script as much as in Huppert's performance, admittedly. But then one of the defaults, one of the, the flaws, I think, in the script for this film, and Marie can tell us how it compares to the earlier TV version and, of course, the novel. Initially, when Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, that class-bound society is, if anything, ironically, even worse in Paris than it was in England. How you know, she's, Everyone's so, not everyone, but most people are so snooty to her. It's like, you know, you're like a cleaning lady from England, and the only reason they entertain her at all is she's willing to pay cash. And we could, You could go into details how she gets the cash, but she has cash in the pocketbook, if you will. A lot of the other customers, and it's a, it's a very funny irony, they may be upper crust, but they're sort of doing things on credit, like, well, let me come in for my fitting and make the dress and well, I'll pay you. And maybe they do and maybe they don't or they pay late. So the temptation from the fashion house point of view is that she's got money in her purse. She's willing to put it right down and pay for this dress. As much as we disdain her in terms of her lowly status, she's going to put money in, in our pockets. And so, you know, they, they let her in that way. Well, anyway, how about Madame Colbert, who's again, sort of the office manager? Initially, she's like so cold, she's cruel. She's really, really mean to Mrs. Harris. And then for reasons I probably shouldn't go into great detail and in, in that, you know, when you watch the movie, you want to discover things for yourself, but I'll just put it this way. Madame Colbert has a change of heart. Let me leave it at that. The fact that she was initially so cold and then when she starts to warm to her, it's like pressing one button in a script and then suddenly pressing another button. And I would like to think that humanity has that capability that now I, I think better of you and I'm on your side and I'm your friend and all. But Marie, directly respond to that because to me, and again, not knowing firsthand the source novel or, or the TV version, I'm watching it thinking, did I miss a scene? It just seemed like Madame Colbert suddenly went from cold to warm and, and, and humanitarian, if you will. Did you have a similar take on that? It just seemed to me it was so abrupt. And, and I thought there should at least be like some lingering hostility or at least some lingering snideness or something. And it just seems like suddenly she becomes a different person. What do you think of that? It doesn't follow the book or the TV movie at all in, the, in both of those that character is the sympathetic one. 
who takes one look at Mrs. Harris and says to herself, I see you. I don't see a cleaning woman. I see a woman with a dream. And because this is what I do, I can see why you would want, you know, a dress from the most celebrated designer of all time at that time. So I really was curious as to why they changed the nature of that character for the movie, because I didn't think it added anything except to make it seem sort of like that sort of default 101 Dalmatians you need, you know, to run this gauntlet of villains. And it really wasn't necessary. So it's actually really interesting to watch the TV version because of the way they make Mrs. Harris's character more of someone like a, a regular person who interacts with all these individual people and each encounter makes a better life for both of them. You know, they, everybody understands more about each other. I actually do have a theory about this and, and it's to the detriment of the film. I'm not speaking against it as a PG rated movie because you know I don't think every movie has to be R rated and hard edged, but this film is so soft at times that I think that's part of the overall softness that initially you set up Madame Colbert as a, frankly, villain. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about her initially. And, you know, you can kind of smile at the performance, but that doesn't mean you approve of what she's saying and doing. So anyway, the fact that she goes from being so cold to suddenly being such a, a nice person and a friend to Mrs. Harris, to me, it just seems like the film itself is suddenly pressing one button and then pressing another. Even characters who at first seem like they're not going to be very nice, very good, almost everyone is redeemed, if you will. And if we went into more detail about the secondary characters in terms of friendship and romance and this and that, all obstacles will be overcome. Uh, everything will be worked out. I mean, you sort of know anyway, it's a feel-good movie. It'll be a happy ending. But I think even too early in the film, you get those strong indications that it's going to turn out. It'll be fine. And so I smile at it, but I'm thinking, well, it's not particularly plausible at times. And at times it's almost, I don't want to say condescending, but I, I feel like it's playing to the audience that way, that it's almost pandering that way. And that's why uh, when I said that earlier, I thought the film was pleasant. And uh, more than that, even being pleasant, there were times where that started to wear thin for me, where I just thought, okay, all right, you know, I see where it's headed and I can go with it. And to me, I thought a film like this that does deal with serious class-related issues could have had a bit more edge to it. And even towards the end of the film, must every character be redeemed? You know what I mean? Like even in stories with essentially happy endings, you might still have one or two disgruntled characters or something a little more profound or deeper. And I thought this film just sort of skimmed an agreeable surface. Now, again, by saying that it's pleasant, a lot of that has to do with what Marie alluded to before, the fact that not only is it about high fashion, but at a high point in fashion history. It's set in the late 1950s, the recovery from World War II is well on its way. And one sign of that is that the fashion industry in Paris is thriving again. And there's really are beautiful dresses. And it's really quite nice to spend time, not just in the showroom where the models are coming out on the runway, if you will. But this film, to its credit, does spend a lot of time in the rooms where the workers are you know, stitching and they're doing all the, the manual labor, which of course is all, almost all done by women here, but the, you know, that labor's going into it. And you can really appreciate the process of making a couture gown. And this at a time where it really was fitted to the individual customer. And so that's one reason why Mrs. Harris feels the need to actually go to Paris and sort of you know, knock on the door and make her case to have a, a dress made. And you know what? Once the dress is made, and not just hers, but other dresses, but once her dress is made, it's a great looking gown. It's Dior after all, and it looks really good on her. And when she smiles as she sees herself, how can you not smile yourself? 
a couple things I wanted to mention. One is that when you watch the TV version, the Omar Sharif character remembers fondly someone from his youth that was a cleaning woman, and he remembered her as Mrs. Mops. And in the movie, this is a source of pain for Mrs. Harris, because when he says this, she realizes, oh, you look at me and all you see is a cleaning woman. You don't see a woman or just a person. And it is this moment for hurt feelings. In the uh, TV version, they don't go there. It's a code name. It's an inside joke. They don't take it to like the, you know, this sort of conflict that needs to be resolved within the movie. And I think it makes it better, a better story in the, in the TV version. The other thing I wanted to mention was I had this sort of flashback to Romy and Michelle where they talk about watching Pretty Woman and they're, you know, sobbing over it. I'm just so happy when they finally let her shop. There is that kind of moment in there where, you know, she's being denied because she's not the right sort of person. And then finally she gets the dress and it's very, very rewarding. But Mike, before we run out of too much time talking about this, I wanted to ask you if you felt that there was any sort of similarity to Babette's Feast, where you take, you know, your windfall and you blow it on this one moment. Well, I think there's at least a general point of thematic consistency or connection there, but I wouldn't push it too far because those films are so very different. And Babette's Feast is really a much better film in all sorts of ways, much stronger film than this one. But the slender point of comparison, which is a valid one, is simply that you have a woman who has been denied in various ways, who's had a kind of frugal life and who finally wants to splurge. And so, yeah, the point of connection, which is totally valid, is, you know, in one film, splurging on a big feast, a big meal, Babette's Feast, in this film, of course, splurging on, on a great dress. But honestly, in a thematic sense, that's just like a general you know, point of, of connection or similarity. But once you go into particulars, they are very, very different films, aren't they? And certainly the personalities of the female protagonists are very different. So probably... Push come to shove, I'd say, yes, I acknowledge that. But on examination, there are, I think, probably more differences than similarities between the two films. Now, after I saw this movie, which, like I said, had a handful of older women in it, which who all clapped at the end of the movie, I went to see Where the Crawdads Sing, which had quite a lot of people there for the opening. So it's definitely gotten the advantage of the hype that came before it. It's a Reese Witherspoon-produced entity. Uh, the book was part of her book club. The book was on the number one spot for 166 weeks in the New York Times. So a lot of people already knew the story coming in. And as I left the movie, everybody seemed to be talking about how it stood up to their experiences of reading the book. But Mike, to begin with, did you read the book? No, I have not read the book. So I'm at a disadvantage there. The book is actually was really as uh, interesting in terms of concepts as the movie puts forth, which is the idea that this young girl is sort of left to her own devices to raise herself in the marshes of North Carolina. And it you know, should be said that the person who wrote this book, and this is her first novel, to this amazing reaction, herself is a naturalist. So this is sort of the area of you know, the world she's comfortable with observing nature, sort of soaking herself in nature, seeing things in terms of natural animalistic ideas. How much of that came across for you, Mike, in the movie? Well, what I found somewhat distracting, and this is simply on a very topical note, is Delia Owens, who wrote the best-selling novel, has been in the news in more recent years in a less kindly way. Because of her background as a wildlife biologist, 
she and a partner had been in Africa, and they're obviously there to observe and try to stop poachers of wildlife. Anyway, long story short, there was a murder out in the bushes, as one would say, and a kind of, you know, mysterious and, and disturbing case of, you know, of, of a killing out in the bush. And there was suspicion, and I have to talk like a lawyer now very carefully, there was suspicion that she and her partner may have had some involvement in all that. Now, I have to very quickly add, as a lawyer would, uh, she's never been charged with anything. And so when she's given interviews in recent years, it's a really awkward situation for her because most of us really just want to talk about the novel and or now the film version of it. But almost always that question will come up or that observation be made. And so there is an unhappy downside to it, if you will, that, you know, if you go into nature and you want to protect it, what happens when you're up against a poacher? Uh, how should you handle that? And uh, I have to leave it at that because I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not investigating this. I'm just reading about it. But in terms of the film itself, Another observation I had, and this is on a quasi-autobiographical note, too, to what we were saying uh, earlier about, you know, when you have connections to a film, the screenwriter, Lucy Alibar, I had met her in Baltimore around 10 years ago when she was the screenwriter for Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is a really, really interesting independent film. And the reason I want to mention this is the fact that when she was in Baltimore talking about that film, that film is set in Louisiana, it's set down in the swamps. It's very much a folkloric slash mythic look at characters, specifically a, a female protagonist who is a social outcast, who's growing up to some extent on her own, like out in the wilderness making it as, as, as in this case, a very young girl in Beast of the Southern Wild. And uh, Lucy Alibar is really drawn to that kind of material, not just the natural world, but if you're a young female protagonist trying to make it there. And so now, uh, you know, and so we had talked about that and I'd heard her talk about it with the audience in, in Baltimore and really did like that, that film uh, and highly recommend it. Now, here we are like 10 years later with this film based on the Delia Owens novel, who's the screenwriter, but Lucy Alibar. And to me, actually, quite seriously, I thought that is a strong point of connection because in Where the Crawdads Sing, you have a young woman, and I don't know if we should go into great detail here, but in any, she comes from an incredibly dysfunctional family. I'll sort of you know cover it with that, that generic statement that the family's just been busted apart. And long and the short of it is this young protagonist is growing up on her own in the swamps, basically. And, and so she's actually referred to disparagingly by the townspeople as the Marsh Girl. And so, again, although I had mixed sort of so-so feelings about this as a film, it's a really good premise, isn't it, to have this young woman growing up basically out in the wilderness. And she gets along well with nature but doesn't always get along well with humanity. And that's not her fault so much. I mean, she does like being alone, but people are oftentimes really suspicious and really hostile towards her. But Marie, don't you agree? It's like a really good premise for a story to have this young woman who's basically raised herself from childhood and how she's going to relate to not just the townspeople, but then in terms of romance, the young men she meets, one good and one not so good, and how her romantic life will proceed. And so the film itself, in a kind of curious way, is both eventually a courtroom drama, because there's a murder case involved, simultaneously a courtroom drama and a romance. And so we should talk about how it balances those elements and what works and maybe what doesn't work so well. Well, I would say that the cinematography definitely works. How can you lose with, you know, Spanish moss at sunset? What doesn't work so much for, what didn't work so much for me with the actress who plays the main character, although I did think she was very good 
I felt like she had studied Holly Hunter in the piano extensively because I just felt that there was just too much Holly Hunter in there for me. It felt so studied. I really felt that was a real disadvantage. What works cinematically, you know, that you don't really get when you read the book, unless you have a really great imagination, is when she does go up on that structure where the young man finally falls to his death. The first time she goes up there, she's able to see the entire marshland from an aerial view, which on the one hand shows you how she's probably putting together all of the, okay, so that tributary goes to this. And, you know, she could see it from the big picture. Being able to see it from the big picture is how she's able to do what happens at the end of the movie. And I don't want to give anything away, but that scene was not only, oh, I can see everything in my world, but it actually is also a very important clue for later. Well, Marie, I'll agree on some points and disagree on others. I agree very strongly with your observations about Daisy Edgar-Jones' performance as Kaya, as the female protagonist. She's effective, but there's a studied, self-conscious quality to it. And I always felt that it was the actor going through the scenes, and you could see how she was, I don't want to say striking a pose, but there was a kind of studied quality to it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, but, you know, ultimately it works well enough. Where I'm disagreeing slightly isn't with you as so much with the production itself. The cinematography really is quite striking. It's a beautifully shot film. So my disagreement is not with your observation that it's beautiful cinematography, but more with the production history. Namely, this is a film set in the North Carolina marshes, what we could call Nicholas Sparks territory in terms of romantic stories set there with female protagonists and kind of mushy PG-13 treatment of it. The film itself was shot in Louisiana. Now, I've been in some swamps in my time, both in North Carolina and Louisiana. As I watched this film, I, I kept thinking, this is more Louisiana than North Carolina. So a lot more Spanish moss than, than, than you would probably get in the Carolinas. So, you know, again, it, it, it works well enough that way. But if you have a good eye for that, you, you realize this is really a deep South swampland. Uh, and North Carolina doesn't have too much of, of that. Louisiana has a, has a lot of it. But again, the, the film for me, where it's ultimately disappointing is it, this deals with a lot of hot button issues in terms of her upbringing, her maturation, her romantic relationships, a murder case, it hits a lot of, or should hit a lot of buttons that way. Considering how many serious issues are dealt with in the storyline, embedded in it, the film itself, and again, I'm fine with the PG-13 rating, but it should push further. It should have more edge. To me, it just seemed kind of soft and kind of treacly at times. There should have been scenes with a harder edge to them or, or a greater sense of dramatic tension. How do you feel about that? Because I just thought the film worked relatively well, but never quite fully got me involved or had me fully with it. And I thought this film is just going a little too gently with the material. What do you think? I think you hit on something with the Nicholas Sparks thing, because I think that's who they pitched this to. It was all the women who like Nicholas Sparks kinds of stories. And what I thought really was effective was understanding its audience in that way. Because, you know, even the song at the end is Taylor Swift. And it has, you know, Reese Witherspoon putting her money into it and developing the project. And it's a very personal story written by someone who knows something about the naturalistic world. So I thought it was giving a voice to a particular kind of story and pitching it towards women who wanted to watch that play out. Well, that's true, but in some ways, isn't it untrue to what the character herself, what the situation would be? In other words, you know, I want life to have a happy ending, 
but this is a film that I thought just sort of sort of um, softened some some rough edges, maybe a little too much. I mean, I know I'm pushing the point, but what do you think of that? I, I just think the film, just as I keep saying, it just goes too gentle. It's just too soft with some really disturbing material. I think I might know what you mean. And in terms of that, I think the book goes further in making it clear what happens at the end, where the movie just sort of you know, kind of gives you an unsettled feeling of not really knowing what really went down. I mean, at the end, Mike, were you sure what happened? Well, the film didn't want me to be sure in some ways, because then we'd have to have firm opinions about disturbing material. Here, it just sort of gets, it's almost like a, a gauzy, soft focus way of ending something, isn't it? It so is. You're, you're left smiling, but then you sort of wonder, what am I smiling at here? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know all the details I'd like to know. <laughs> I think you just summed that up perfectly. <laughs> but that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.